Okay, so Easter itself, though, and the weeks leading up to Easter, I think are so valuable for us as followers of Jesus because they intentionally provide us an opportunity to recalibrate, to refocus, to recenter our lives on the one who gives us life. And so maybe some of you are coming out of this Easter. You're coming out of this Easter season and you're, you're coming out of it having made a new commitment to follow Jesus. Maybe some of you have recommitted your life to following Jesus. And I just want to take a moment to honor that decision and to just speak a blessing from the scriptures over you. Um, so it's this. This is number 6, 24 through 26. And uh, it's very near and dear to me. Um, it's one that my father-in-law says often. And uh, so I wanted to share that with you today. So it's, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord smile on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord show his favor and give you peace. So as you make this commitment or this recommitment, this commitment no matter what, either way, I pray that the Lord seeks your face, or that you seek his face, and that he shows his face to you. Okay? We're so, we're so excited you're here. We're so excited to be here. Um, so this past weekend, past weekend, right, Easter weekend, was our third Easter weekend with Ophelia. Um, and I'm just convinced at this point that children, especially young children, make holidays, like Easter, um, exponentially more fun but also exponentially more difficult, right? More exhausting, I should say. And so this year, uh, this year was the first year that Ophelia really grasped the concept of like an Easter egg hunt. Um, and so, because before it was just kind of like, oh yeah, like it was just a shiny thing. What does this taste like? I don't know. And then rip open and there was something inside it. She was always more interested in just the plastic egg than really anything else. Okay, so this time she started to realize, oh, what are those shiny things on the ground? Like, I'm going to go collect them. You know, I'm going to open it up. And, whoa, that's really cool what's inside. Like, it was really exciting. And so, um, so anyway, this was the first year she was actually interested in what was inside all of these colorful eggs laying around outside. And so yesterday we had a get-together with some of our friends and, uh, who also have younger kids, and we planned an Easter egg hunt. And so the whole day yesterday, I'm getting Ophi like just pumped for it, right? I'm getting her really excited about all the things that could possibly be inside of these Easter eggs, like toys, stickers, and perhaps what she was most excited about, candy. Oh, yeah. Can you guess what wasn't in any of these Easter eggs? Candy and also money. Whoever <laughs> said that? Candy. Yeah, that's correct. There was no candy inside any of these Easter eggs. Yes, I know. We need new friends. So, some of them are sitting here in the room today. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. All right. Now, thankfully, she wasn't too disappointed about the candy. Um, she actually only mentioned it once in the car ride home, which I was kind of surprised about. You know, she's just sitting back there in the car like, Easter eggs had no candy. I'm like, you know what? I'm bummed. I'm bummed about it too. She only mentioned it once. But on the other hand, like, she wasn't, she really wasn't bothered by it. I was totally expecting to be eating some candy on the car ride home. Right? You parents know what I'm talking about. 
Okay, and so, and I've heard it said, I've heard it said that expectations are premeditated resentments. Expectations are premeditated resentments. And I think yet we're still pretty good at accumulating them. If we're truly honest, we've all got expectations in just about everything in our work, our friendships, our relationships, our marriages, for our children. We have ideas and plans for the way we think things should go, expect things to go, the way we feel we deserve things to go. And when they don't, we get disappointed, resentful even. We even have expectations for what our walk with Jesus should look like and expectations for what we think Jesus should be doing for us, others, and the world around us. What happens when Jesus isn't what we expected or when he doesn't do what we expect him to do? What do we do then? Today we're starting a new series called 30 Pieces of Silver. And maybe you've heard this phrase before, maybe you're familiar with its connotations. If you haven't, that's okay too, um, because we're going to be examining this idea today and exploring it further over the next four weeks. But today, I invite you to open your Bibles with me. Um, If you've got the Bible app, that's fine too, that works, that's great. Uh, We're going to be opening to the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to be in chapter 26, and we're going to be starting from verse 6. Uh, so and we're just gonna we're just gonna dive dive right in because I'm notorious for going over. So giving context, so we're gonna we're gonna dive in today. Um, verse six. All right, a little bit of context. Okay, this is like the week before because <laughs> I have to. It's just in me. I have to. All right, so we're looking at like the week before or the day before Holy Week. Really, essentially, this is before Jesus's triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Okay, at least that's, that's where the Gospel of John puts it. That's where we think it was most likely the chronological space for this, op, for this moment in, in the Gospel. So here we go. Now, it's different in the Gospel of Mark and in the Gospel of Matthew, but th- this, is, this is where John puts it, but we're going to read for Matthew. Okay, got it? Some context. We're, we're leading up to Holy Week. Jesus is about to do the triumphal entry. So anyway, he's, he's in Bethany, which is about two miles, two miles from Jerusalem, from the city. Okay, so while Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and all the money given to the poor. Aware of their thoughts, Jesus says to them, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. He says, the poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the 12, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief of priests and asked, what are you willing to give me If I deliver him over to you, they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. From then on, Judas watched 
for an opportunity to hand him over. So we're going to just talk about this for a second. So first we read, a woman, who we know to be Mary, thanks to the Gospel of John, um, makes a scene by anointing Jesus' head with oil. Okay, And then we read that disciples get annoyed about this because, A, it was extravagant. And it was extravagant. This oil was worth around 300 denarii. Okay, or, or in like, just this, this would have been worth an entire year's salary. What you make in a year, this lady just dumped out over Jesus' over Jesus's head. It would have been more graceful than that, but you get the point. So it was extravagant, okay? And so the disciples, they get all righteous about it, and they think they know a better use of the money for the poor, right? That's what they say. We'll get to that. So that was A. B, this was typically an expression reserved for the dead. So in a relatable moment, we see the disciples just are not getting the point. They think they know what Jesus is up to in Jerusalem, what Jesus is about to go do. But in this moment, it is clear that they don't. It is clear that they don't get it. But who does? Mary. Mary seems to understand what is going on here. It's not said but we can apply that because Jesus was on to his death. And Jesus alludes to this several times. And so, basically, so he tells his disciples off, right? And then he takes, his, he takes it a step further and he says that they should honor her because she has done a good thing. The poor you will always have with you, he says. And he's not saying that you shouldn't serve. I just want to clarify this, that you shouldn't serve or give to the poor. He's actually, when he says that, he's actually referring to Deuteronomy 15.11. So in verse 11, he's referring to, referring to Deuteronomy 15.11, which is, there will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed towards your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. That wasn't what they were worried about wasn't the point. Whether it was ethically right or wrong to dump out a year's wage isn't the point. In Mark's account of this, it is written that Jesus says about Mary, she did what she could. That's the point Jesus is making here. What she had, she gave. She poured out. She surrendered what she had. And comparatively, we see that Judas is ready to make a deal and to trade Jesus for 30 pieces of denarii, which would have been about a month's salary. Now, it's pretty easy. It would be pretty easy just to kind of take this and run those two stories parallel between the good and extravagant gift from Mary who understands Jesus' purposes and then the pathetic exchange of what would amount to a relatively just insignificant um, profit for Judas, in exchange for Jesus, right? That, that'd be an easy parallel. But I think there's another point that we might be missing. If all Judas wanted out of life was a little cash, why would he follow Jesus at all? Most uh, traditional game shows, right, they're kind of built on this, this premise that you can risk a little and make a lot, right? Some of us in the room aren't risk takers. I'm, I'm one of those people. Others are willing to like keep 
pressing their luck with the potential to like win big dangling right in front of them, right? Have you guys heard of the show Deal or No Deal? Or no Deal? Right? Is it, anyone not heard of it? Okay. Uh, for those of you that don't know what that show is, it's a game show where the contestant is presented with 26 like just cases that include dollar amounts ranging from a penny to a million dollars. And the contestant chooses one case at the beginning, hoping that it's that million dollar case, and then eliminates the remaining cases by opening them up one by one. And so as the game progresses and there's, there's less confusion or less just, um, it's, it's not as vague as to what box is still left, you'll see a banker that'll come on and he'll send an offer to the, con- to the contestant. He'll offer this contestant a deal, a deal to stop now and take home a reasonable sum, whatever, whatever the banker comes up with. Or you can press your luck and possibly end up taking home less or more than what they offered. At this point in Judas's journey, it seems like he decided on the quote, unquote, deal. The deal that 30 pieces of silver would be better than whatever Jesus might have provided. What happens when Jesus doesn't live up to our expectations of him? Well, Judas sold out. That's what he did. Judas sold out. Perhaps Judas hoped following Jesus would pay off in the end, right? He counted on Jesus' words coming true, that he and the other disciples would eventually sit on 12 thrones, receiving 100 times more in the kingdom to come. Yet once they arrived in Jerusalem, everything changed. Jesus started acting like a crazy person. He started acting like he had a death wish. And a dead Messiah would hardly be able to deliver on the promise of the kingdom that was coming to earth. Jesus wasn't what Judas expected, and he wasn't doing what he expected. So perhaps that's why Judas bailed. We do know that Judas had an unhealthy relationship with money. The Gospel of John, he writes that he was the keeper of the money bag and that he would help himself whenever he wanted. So when Jesus wasn't the means to the end that Judas was wanting or expecting, he decided to trade in. Because in that moment, Jesus couldn't provide Judas with a throne. So why not just try to get something out of the deal? Why not try to get something out of it? We read that from that moment, after the scene with Mary, from that moment, Judas was ready to betray Jesus. All he was waiting for was the right opportunity But to sell out for such a meager amount, for such a tiny, insignificant amount, Judas? Seriously? Come on, man. What are you thinking? Surely Jesus would have been worth more than that. When Jesus isn't what we expected, it becomes easy to trade him for something else. Because expectations have everything to do with ourselves. They're focused, with, focused on what I can get out of this or what's in it for me. Unfortunately, sometimes we really aren't that much different from Judas. 
We are quick to confess that Jesus, he's the son of God. But then we proceed to try and force him, force him into the ways we think best represents our own image, our perspectives, our needs. When we follow Jesus based off of our own expectations of what he will do and how he will do it, it begins a slow shift of our hearts and it'll eventually lead to disappointment with God or resentment even. And then the temptation to trade him in becomes really easy. In the days leading up to the death of Jesus, we see this shift in people's hearts. We see the shift as they begin to realize that Jesus isn't what they were expecting. Right? On that triumphal entry the next day, the crowd is out shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, which means save us, save us. They expected Jesus, this Messiah, to come in and liberate them from Rome's oppression. When he doesn't do that, when he succumbs to arrest, We see the crowd, we see them shout, crucify him. A lot of the same people. We see that shift. We see his followers shift as well. Judas, he was a, he was a chosen of the 12. He was nearly as close to Jesus as you could get. But Jesus wasn't what he was expecting. He betrays him. Judas betrays Jesus. Peter, the rock on which the church will be built, he denies Jesus. Thomas, another disciple, doubts Jesus. So many shifting emotions, doubts, and beliefs and yet, it's so amazing. Jesus' response to each one was loving kindness. Jesus, he came in humility, displayed the greatest acts of servanthood and sacrifice. He came in a way that rescued people, in a way that defied every expectation. When we insist on Jesus coming to us in the way that we desire, we might actually miss it entirely. We may find ourselves shifting into doubt and unbelief from disappointment to resentment. And we may find ourselves moving away when we should be leaning in. The beautiful part about Jesus throughout all of this is that even though he knew that betrayal, he knew it was coming, he knew that doubt and unbelief would occur, he still drew them in. He loved them. He served them, and he died for them. And so, friends, there's grace for us. There's grace for us who have handed Jesus over, who have traded in him, who have, who have doubted, who have lost their belief. There's grace. But there is also a challenge, friends. If Jesus seemingly fails our expectations, how should we respond how should we respond? 
we respond with surrender. We respond to this is what I have. This is what I've got. I give you what I have and I pour it out. I surrender. When we cry, Hosanna, come save us. Are we crying, surrendered to his way, his purpose, trusting his love and faithfulness to us? I don't know what you're tempted to trade Jesus for. I think it's really hard to admit that we even would. And if I'm honest with myself, I know that I do. We all think that we aren't like Judas. But when the opportunity arises, we suddenly see Jesus, Judas looking back at us in the mirror. When we have that opportunity to trade Jesus in, when Jesus wasn't what we were expecting, and in the moment, we often see Judas looking back at us. And like Judas, if we ever had hope in Christ in the first place, we know, we know the sorrow of regret. Judas seeing Jesus take on the cross, he takes that money back. He takes the money back that the priests gave him, and he goes and he takes his life. His story ended tragically. But perhaps the most tragic thing about Judas, I think, is that he didn't stick around long enough to experience that his betrayal was not enough to put an end to God, to put an end to the goodness that was coming in Jesus. That's the tragedy. And unfortunately, Jesus was gone before he could see the resurrection of Christ and understand the path to forgiveness and restoration through Jesus. Maybe we have made an idol out of our expectations, the things that we want, like wealth, power, control, or comfort. We'll, we'll tackle some of these ideas in later weeks. But the way of the cross means that we can repent and adjust course towards Christ. Unlike Judas, we live after the cross and resurrection. Amen? We understand that because of that, because of what happened 2,000 years ago on the cross and three days later, the resurrection, we understand that we don't have to be crushed in our slavery to sin and shame. There's a different path. And so this week, as we reflect on the things that we are tempted to trade for Jesus in our own lives, I think that that can help us deepen our understanding of our Judas tendencies, but also to rejoice in the gift of God's redemptive grace in our lives through his death and resurrection. Friends, Judas's life ended in a field by his own hand. Our story doesn't end in a field. Our story ends in glory with our risen Savior as his beloved children. Amen?
Friends, I think this is an important word for us in a time and in a culture that is so inwardly focused, that is so self-focused. I know this is a challenging word. This was a challenging word for me today. For expectations that I've had, that I thought when I accepted Jesus, I thought my struggles would go away, that addiction would, would be behind me, that things would just be easy in all my relationships, that I wouldn't have to worry about my job, that I wouldn't have to worry about stuff, but the reality is that Jesus says to us, he sets the expectation up, friends, you will face trouble. How do we respond when we do? When Jesus isn't what we expected or the things that he's doing isn't what we expected. I would, um, I would encourage you to choose to surrender. I read a really interesting thought on this idea this week. And it was, it was a conversation with Jesus that someone wrote very poetically. And it was, if you, would you choose me? That was the idea. And it was like this conversation with Jesus. If you were sitting before him, standing before him, Austin, if your marriage failed, would you still choose me? Even if the job didn't work out, would you still choose me? Even if you didn't have what you needed at the end of the month, would you still choose me? Even if this child that you've been praying for doesn't make it, would you still choose me? I'm sorry, I have, this, I, have, I have friends, dear friends of mine who have chosen Jesus in that moment. And they're inspiring to me. Because I've seen faithfulness and I've seen the goodness of God in ways that just can't be explained. And it came from choosing Jesus. In those times, I just would encourage you to surrender and to praise him. There's a, there's a psalm that I think is beautiful. Psalm 13, and, and the, the heading is, How Long, O Lord? And uh, I think David gets it. I think David gets it. It goes like this, and I just want to share this with you. If you guys would just close your eyes, just think. Just invite Jesus into this moment for yourself. Make this a prayer. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? 
Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Lift up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. And I think the message version is great. So with your, with your eyes still closed, it reads like this. Long enough, God. You've ignored me long enough. I've looked at the back of your head. Long enough, I've carried this ton of trouble, lived with a stomach full of pain. Long enough, my arrogant enemies have looked down their noses at me. Take a good look at me, God. My God. I want to look life in the eye. So no enemy can get the best of me or laugh when I fall on my face. God, I throw myself headlong into your arms. I'm celebrating your rescue, Jesus. I'm listening, I'm singing at the top of my lungs. I'm so full of answered prayers. God, in this moment, We just want to praise you. I want to lift up your name, Lord. In the presence of hundreds of stories in this room, hundreds of backgrounds, places we've been, things we've seen, sorrows we've felt, pain we've experienced. Victories, God, that we can praise you for. Joy that we've experienced. God, even when this life doesn't go the way we think it ought to, the way we expected, the way we think we deserve, I just want to pray thankfulness to you, God, that we don't get what we deserve. We didn't deserve your son. We deserved death, and you graciously gave us life. Jesus, shape, shape our hearts and shape our minds to be more like you. Take our desires, take our expectations, Jesus. We surrender them to you and we pour them out to you. Because God, we know that you are good in all things. We know that you are good. Jesus, we receive that this morning. And then we lift it up to you. We love you and we praise you, God. It's in your name. Amen.